Okay, today we are looking at what is most popularly known, especially in Matthew, as the Olivet Discourse. And this is Mark's version of the Olivet Discourse. And um, it is something else. This is, uh, we're talking end times, we're talking abomination of desolation, we're talking son of man coming in the clouds kind of stuff. So, um, strap in. Here we go. <laughs> the first thing that we need to state as we start on this discussion is the context. Remember, context is king. Uh, the context is always important, especially when you're trying to understand a teaching passage. You have to think in terms of what is the context. So I, get, I made this little uh, handout for you. And uh, just to remind us of where we've been, Jesus entered the temple, chapter 11, correct? Uh, He comes into Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple. Uh, So his triumphal entry is focused on the temple. Uh, The next thing that happens is we have the cursing of the fig tree. And we talked about how the cursing of the fig tree is really a a living parable, a living slash dying parable of the temple. This is the temple system. It looks really good on the outside. It looks like it's uh, a healthy tree from a distance, but when you get close, you realize there's no fruit on it, that it's sterile. And this is the problem with the temple. It looks really good on the outside, but when you get up close, it's it's not healthy. It's not producing fruit, the fruit of righteousness and repentance. Um, Then Jesus goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple, right? Turns over all the money changers and and the people selling and buying and all of that. And then uh, he declares that this house is a house of prayer. But you've turned it into what? A den of robbers, right? So this is a place where Wicked people feel safe. Well, you got another thing coming, Jesus is saying, because this temple will be destroyed. Then we get to the vineyard parable. And the vineyard parable is the parable about the tenants of the vineyard, the leadership of the vineyard. And the leadership are focused in the temple. These are the leaders of the temple. Okay? And they are going to be removed. And new leaders are going to be put in their place. Then we have questions from the authorities in the temple, the inquisitors, right? Um, Mo, Larry, and Curly. (laughs) And uh, they all show up, and Jesus, these are the leadership. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the leadership that meets in the temple. And Jesus discredits them. And then finally, the disciples in this chapter, it says Jesus was leaving the temple, and one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, I'm not impressed. Do you see all these great buildings? Not, a one, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Okay, so Jesus now predicts the destruction of the temple. So you see how the temple has been at the heart of everything that Jesus has been saying and doing ever since he arrived in Jerusalem. 
Um, this isn't the first time Jesus has seen the temple. We know from the book of John, Jesus has probably been back and forth three times a year to Jerusalem. Um, however, this is the first time in Mark that he's been to Jerusalem and been to the temple. And so what Mark is saying is that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem this last time, his focus is on the temple and on its, its fate, okay, and on its judgment. So we have to keep this in mind because it's very important as we enter into this discussion of what um, we've come to understand as the last days, right, the end times, um, because it's very tied, tied very closely uh, to the destruction of the temple, which will occur in Jesus' lifetime, well, in his lifetime, in what would have been his lifetime had he lived his lifetime, right? The lifetime of the disciples, which was 66 to 70 AD, all right? So, in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they, will, that they are about to be fulfilled? Um, so, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives sits to the east of Jerusalem. And if you sit on the Mount of Olives, you look across the Kidron Valley, you see the temple. You look right at the Temple Mount, and you, you can do this today. You can go and sit on the Mount of Olives and look right, you're looking right at the, the temple, okay? And so you can see Jesus just sitting there looking across. He's seated. That means he's in the teaching position, Right? And four guys come to him, four of his disciples. Who are they? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. When have we last heard these four guys together? No, we heard three of the four. When they were called. All the way back chapter one. So this is the first time. And so I think it's interesting. You know, Mark is reaching all the way back to the very beginning. And this is Jesus, in essence, his last discourse with his disciples before, before his, you know, the situation with his death is really, that's the next chapter. That's what's going to happen. It's going to start the trial and all that. And so uh, all of this is tied together. All right. So um, that's interesting. They asked two questions. What are the two questions? When. The big when. And then what will be the signs? Okay, these are the two questions that frame Jesus' discussion. So you need to remember these two questions. Jesus will answer them in reverse. He'll start out with the signs, and then he'll end with the when. All right, so that helps us as we, um, as we think about what Jesus is saying. Now, I want to talk about one other thing preliminarily before we get started. Um, well, maybe two. <laughs> One is, is the nature of prophecy. Um, if you remember Isaiah 7.14, you remember Isaiah 7.14? Ah, huh? Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. All right? Very important verse. We sing about it every year, right? It's very tied into Christmas. Um, it's a prophecy that Matthew ties directly to the birth of Jesus. 
However, if you read it in the book of Isaiah, there is a fulfillment of that prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is standing in the court of, the, of, the, of King Ahaz, and he says to King Ahaz, You've had, I told you to ask God for a sign. You stubbornly will not ask God for a sign. So behold, a sign will be given to you. And this is the sign. The virgin, or the young maiden in the Hebrew, will conceive and bear a child. And this, when this, chi- this child is born, he will be a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, okay? And this child, if you read on through the prophecy, it says this child, when he gets to the age where he can tell right from wrong, which for a Jew is about 12 years old, uh, then these two nations that you worried about, they were in the midst of a crisis, and they were worried about Israel and Aram coming down and forcing Jerusalem to join with them in order to fight against the coming Assyrian threat. And so you're worried about Israel and you're worried about Aram. Both of those nations will no longer exist by the time this child is 12 years old. Okay, so that was the original prophecy that was fulfilled 12 years after it was spoken. Okay, and so this is um, the immediate fulfillment, the first fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, later the prophecy obviously has a greater picture. If you read through Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12, those chapters, they're all tied together with the word Emmanuel. And later by chapter 9, you're going to get statements like, and unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wait a minute. This is language that goes far beyond any little kid born in in, in the king's court, right? Okay, so even from the beginning, the first fulfillment is one thing, but there's a greater fulfillment coming, all right? So this is called multiple fulfillment prophecy. And it is, a na- it is the nature and character of a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament, okay? And obviously in the New Testament, because I think Jesus is using it here. Okay, the first fulfillment, what does it do? It brings credibility to the prophet because it's fulfilled in the lifetime of the hearers. And so when that first fulfillment happens, everybody goes, this guy's speaking for God, right? Because what he said came true. And that means we can trust the greater fulfillment that's coming. Okay, so it builds credibility. In, in the second case, um, the first fulfillment acts as a model or a paradigm for the greater fulfillment. So in the first fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, a child is born and that child represents God with us. Every time we look at this little child, Emmanuel, Manny's running around the king's court and everybody's thinking, God is with us. By the time he's 12 years old, this threat's going to be gone, right? And isn't that what Jesus did? 
in a much greater sense. He came to earth as a representation, not only a representation, but the full expression of God with us. And when we look at him, we have peace because we know that God is with us. He cares about us, that our sins are forgiven, that there's an assurance of our salvation, right? All of that comes through Jesus. Well, you see how that first fulfillment is, a, is the shadowy reflection of what the ultimate fulfillment of the passage is, okay? And we always see that the importance and the grandeur of the prophecy grows. So the first fulfillment will be pretty simple. The second one's going to be even greater. There could be a third one that's even greater, okay? So each time it becomes more complete, more powerful, more um, revelatory. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the nature of prophecy. So what Jesus is doing here is he's tied together the destruction of the temple that's about to come in the lifetime of the disciples. And he's saying, this is a paradigm for what's going to happen at the end of the age when I return. And so we have both of these fulfillments, both of these events being talked about at the same time. Okay? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so when you approach this passage with that mindset, it starts to make more sense. And it helps to explain some of the things that have been always really difficult to sort out, okay? Um, and you understand that this is a biblical pattern. This is the way prophecy has worked in the past. All right. Good. So that's the foundation. Now we're going to read a little bit. And then we're going then, then to talk about Daniel. Um, somebody read for us starting at uh, verse 5. And let's get into what Jesus says a little bit. Read verse 5. Oh, goodness. Oh, somebody, let's just read the whole thing. Let's go all the way. We've got to get a feel for the whole thing. So somebody read, starting at verse 5, read through uh, verse 19, then someone else pick it up at 20 and read through 37. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will, be, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those who will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. All right. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot here, and we're going we're gonna to take a, take a look at it. But there are two references, two very clear references to the book of Daniel in, um, in this passage. And so we're going to talk about... Uh, Daniel chapter 9. I want you to turn to Daniel 9, and we're going to talk about Daniel's very famous passage, the, the, the 70 weeks. Okay? So let's talk about Daniel's 70 weeks. Again, context is king. Daniel is an old man now. He's been in Babylon just about his whole life. He's praying because... He read this, the, the letter that, that Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Babylon that said that this whole deal would be over in 70 years. And so he was praying about God's, the restoration of Jerusalem and the return of God's people. And so God sends him an angel. And the angel comes and he says, 
God has decided not only to talk to you about the 70 years and the return of the people to Jerusalem, but he's going to talk to you about 77s. Okay, well, what in the world is 77s? Or in the King James, it says the 70 weeks. Well, seven is an important number in the Bible. It's also the number around which Israel's calendar is organized. We organize our calendar around the number 10, right? Decades, centuries, they're all a measure of 10. The Jews didn't. They organized their calendar around seven. Why? Because the earth was created in seven days, right? And so seven is their number. If you look in the Old Testament law, you realize that a piece of land is farmed for, uh, on a seven-year cycle, right? So the seventh year, it's left fallow so that the land rests. And then it, it, is, it can be farmed again. Um, after seven sevens, that's 49 years, you have a year of jubilee when all of the land and all of the work is to stop and God is to be worshipped, right? So everything is organized around sevens. So when God speaks prophecy about time, he speaks of it in sevens, not in tens. All right? Make sense? Okay. So that helps us understand that for the Jew, this wouldn't have been that weird to talk about seven sevens. Okay? So God says... In this passage, look at verse 24, um, and it says, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and, and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, just listen to those words. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for wickedness. Well, who atoned for sin and wickedness? Jesus. Okay? So this has messianic overtones to it. Verse 25. Know and understand this. Yeah, right. From the time the word goes out, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that is the Messiah, because anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and destruction and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering at the temple. And he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Real clear? We good? Want to end early? Okay. So 
This is, let's talk about this a little bit. Okay, seven sevens. How many years is seven sevens? If a seven is a, what? 49. How many years is 62 sevens? Somebody do the math. Somebody break out your calculator. Do the math. Let's go. Like 483, right? Somebody do the math. 434. What is it? 434. 434. 434. Thank you. Now add 49 and 434. 483. 483. There's my 483 number. Thank you very much. Is that helping? Yes. All right. So, interestingly, from where Daniel sits... In about 50 years, 49 years, seven sevens, Jerusalem will be restored. So there, it, it says from the time that the, te- the decree goes out, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem happens somewhere, bet- somewhere between 34 and, or between 44 and 34, um, 444, around 444. Uh, to 434 uh, AD or BC. Okay? So it happens in that range. It's not real clear. There are several times when decrees are made, and you can run the numbers from different times. Uh, Cyrus gives a decree in like 438. Um, So it's in this range of time that it happens. It doesn't need to be precise. What is interesting is that when you run these numbers and you run 438 years from that decree period, you end up somewhere right between about 29 and 39 AD. And what happens between somewhere in between 29 and 39 AD? Jesus, Jesus dies on the cross. Okay? So God hundreds of years before Jesus ever walks the face of the earth, lays out a calendar and describes to Daniel when these things are going to take place, when sin is going to happen, when his sin is going to be cut off, right? When put finished transgression, put an end to sin and atone for wickedness. And it says what happens, the anointed one, the ruler comes and all this will happen in 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The anointed one will be put to death. Wait a minute, the Messiah will be put to death? Yes, right here. And then it goes on to talk about the destruction of the sanctuary. So the temple will be destroyed. So here we are, Daniel's talking while the temple is still destroyed. And God is saying, no, the temple and Jerusalem will be restored in, four, in, in seven sevens, in 49 years. But, and then will last another 62 sevens. And then the anointed one will come and he'll be killed. And then the sanctuary will be destroyed. Okay? And, and so Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the sanctuary. 
He's at the end of this period. Jesus is standing right here. Jesus is right here. You are here. Right before the cross. And he's about to explain what this, is, what this timeline is all about. And he's talking about this. But this is a paradigm for this. Now, the, the, the thing that makes all of this difficult, because all of it's so, so clear, right, is the last seven. That last seven just seems to float out there. And um, here's, here's what I think. I think what a lot, of, a lot of people think is that this last seven is that the seven-year tribulation that's talked about in Revelation. This is the end. And I believe that we are right now living in what's called the last days. Peter called them the last days. And the last days are the last days really run from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection until the end. Until God starts this prophetic clock back up and finishes out his program uh, with... And, and notice that the program is tied very closely to the temple and to Jerusalem. Because Daniel is praying and asking about Jerusalem and the reconstruction, the return of the people and all of that in the land. And we would have never thought that the people would re- ever return to the land. But in 1948, they returned to the land. And a little bit later, they gained control of Jerusalem. There's still no temple. But I wouldn't be surprised that someday there's going to be a temple. And I tell you what, when that temple gets built, I'd start counting. I'd start, get your clock out. <laughs> okay? Get your calendar out. <laughs> because that's about when it's going to start happening. I think that's when it's going to start unfolding. I don't know. Is it going but, to have to be on the side of the mosque? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I would be foolish to Aren't say. Right? <laughs> I am. You open the door. <laughs> we... Gosh. Um, so now let's talk about this is this is called Luke calls this the times of the Gentiles. Okay. The temple is destroyed. And the Jews are out of their land. And this is the time when God is dealing with the Gentiles. But I think there will be a time, if you read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, those ones we skip all the time, because they are so weird. God isn't finished with his people. He's going to finish the program with his people. Okay? And I think the end is tied up with the people of God, the people of Israel, at some, in some way, shape, or form. And so... This is all very interesting, and I think it helps us to understand that God has a plan, okay? He doesn't want us to know the times or the hours. That's clear from what Jesus says. So there's just a few things that I want to point out in Jesus' words here. So let's go back to Jesus. You know, it's, uh, it's encouraging to know that the end times are not going to come until after they've built the temple. And so we don't need to sweat it until you see that being rebuilt. Let's talk about that. That's a, that's a, that's a great point because you have made a point for me that I want to make later that Jesus makes. 
So let's take a look. Watch out there will, that no one deceives you. This is verse 5. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things will happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Uh, the begin- These are the beginnings of the birth pains. Okay? Now, um, another word we could use for this time, beside times of the Gentiles, is the birth pains. Because um, I think... Okay, think about it in terms of, of pregnancy, all right? Um, this, this age is about to end, okay? A baby is in the womb of a mother, and everything goes quietly for a while, right? And then we come to the last part, and it's time for the baby to come out. And the birth pains get intense. But sometimes there's breast and eggs. Yeah. Well, don't complicate the matter, Joy. You're not Daniel either. <laughs> so, so let's think about this for a moment. Because, you know, a child knows its mother in the womb, right? They have a sense of their mother. That child is alive. Their brain is functioning, right? But they don't know their mother like they're going to know their mother when they see their mother face to face, right? When that child is born, that relationship changes and, it, and it's completely different and it is more complete and, the, and it goes on much longer, right? Well, think about that in terms of our relationship with God. Right now, we know God as a child knows its parent in utero. We can't see him. We know he's there but we can't even relate to him because the world in which we live is totally apart from the world in which the parent lives, right? There will be great travail, and then we will come out into a new relationship with God, a relationship where we will know him face to face. That's coming, right? And it will be great, and it will be wonderful. But we're in the midst of the birth pains now. And that's what Jesus is describing. He's saying this time will be marked by tumult, by war, by rumor of war, by earthquakes, all these things. But don't believe that's the end. It's not the end. Okay? It's just part of the birth pains, part of what's happening in the midst of all of this. You must be on your guard because you're going to be drugged out into, and flogged in the synagogues. You're going to be handed over to local councils on account of me. And, but you must be my witnesses, right, to governors and to kings and stand before the Gentiles. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And so we must be witnesses for God in the midst of this time, and we must preach and proclaim the truth of the gospel to all peoples, right? That's what we're assigned to do before the end will come. And that's why God in his grace has extended this period, even though it's a painful period, he's extended this period for the blessing of the peoples of the earth 
so that they might know him, so that they might have the opportunity to be saved, right? And so the gospel is expanding as we do our job, as we are witnesses. And this is what he's telling his disciples. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one in the housetops go down to enter their house or take anything. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Okay, let's talk about the abomination that causes desolation. This is a cryptic phrase, um, and I think it has three fulfillments. Okay, the first fulfillment happened in about 189 B.C. um, when a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he was a Greek king from Syria during the Hellenistic period. He enters Jerusalem. He controlled Jerusalem. He enters the temple and he places a statue of Zeus in the temple. This was considered by the Jews the abomination that causes desolation. This is the greatest defilement that the temple had ever received. And so the Jews rise up in what's called the Maccabean Revolt, led by the Hasmonean family, a family of priests. And they fight against this waning Greek empire, and they throw them out of Jerusalem, and they establish their own independence for about 100 years. Okay, This is when Hanukkah happens. This is the battle when the lamp burnt in the temple for more time than it had oil, and it's the festival of lights. All that happened during this struggle, okay? And it's the cleansing then of the temple. The temple wasn't destroyed. It was defiled. First fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. Next, and there's some... The abomination of desolation is mentioned three times in Daniel, and the other two times seem to fit well with this first fulfillment. The next fulfillment, I think, is the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Okay? Now it's even greater, right? The temple will not only be defiled, it'll be destroyed. And all of the city will be destroyed. But there's a greater fulfillment of the abomination of desolation, which I think is someone who will claim to be Jesus, who will do miracles. He will be the Antichrist. He will be that ultimate blasphemy against God. And so do you see how this gets larger as it moves? It just kind of grows in, in its, its, its nature, becomes even more and more vile as it moves forward in time. So I think that's what we have going on with the abomination of desolation, and it ties it together with this passage in Daniel. Okay, so Jesus talks about this. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. Now, just a side note, a historical side note. When the, the Christians, remember the Christians in the book of Acts are living in Jerusalem. There is a major church in Jerusalem that meets in the courts of the temple. Okay? The Jews never left the cocoon of Judaism. The early Christians never left Judaism. They stayed in the temple. They stayed in Jerusalem. And even though they were persecuted because they weren't going to let go of the apparatus that God had established, they felt that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment, that he should be there, right? He should be represented. Um, But Jesus said, when you see this happening, flee to the mountains. 
Don't stand and fight against the Romans. Flee to the mountains. And when this happened, the Christian church listened to what Jesus said, and they fled to a place called Pella, which is in Transjordan to the north. Um, And they went and they stayed there. They hid out there while the Jews that fought for Jerusalem and fought for the temple and went up onto Masada, they were all slaughtered by the Romans. Okay? But Jesus gave them instructions. Flee to the mountains. Don't delay. Get out of Jerusalem. Get away from all of this because it's not going to be good. And God doesn't want you to stand and fight and expect. Because everyone was saying, stand and fight. The Messiah is going to come and save us. And Jesus says, don't believe them. Get out of Dodge. And they did. Okay? So they listened to the prophecy of Jesus. And they were saved. Okay. Verse 26. Well, no, no. Verse 23. So be on your guard. Notice this. Watch out. Be on your guard. Look out. Okay. This is our posture in the midst of all of this. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is called apocalyptic language. Okay. And this refers to the end of time. So obviously Jesus is not just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about the big event at the end. And then he says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds of the earth and to the ends of heaven. If we look now where that comes from, that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a, a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and he was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is, everlast, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, this is Daniel, okay? And Jesus is quoting directly from Daniel. And Jesus called himself the Son of Man, and that's kind of a nebulous title. But we see that Jesus was referring to the messianic manifestation of the Son of Man that comes in the clouds with the angels at the end of time that marks the end of time and comes before the ancient of days and the books are opened and the judgment comes and the kingdom is set up. So Jesus is talking about the end here. Back to Mark. It's kind of interesting to think about, um, you know, Jesus is preparing everybody, but he's not the one that's going to call the shots. God the Father is the one that's going to start this in motion. That's right. That's right. So it's kind of confusing to me. I mean, you know, I mean, I understand that, you know, everybody's got their job. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Jesus knows all what's going to happen. Yeah. It's very interesting because they work in such perfect harmony. 
right? God and Jesus, they're in submission. The Ancient of Days says to this man-like figure, your dominion and your kingdom will last forever. This is God talking to a human figure, right? In the book of Daniel. And they must have been scratching their heads going, what? We understand it more clearly because we're looking back, right, from our vantage point here. But this was really confusing stuff to them. It's really interesting to analyze that phrase, son of man. Yeah. Because it kind of goes back to Genesis after sin when God says someone born of woman, actually a son of man, will be the means by which sin is removed from the world. The son of man is a person, yet the Son of Man is greater than a person because God has to be involved in this because we can't get ourselves out of this mess we're in. Exactly. So it's really interesting to reflect on that statement. And Jesus preferred, preferred that title over anything. Call yes. himself the Son of Man. Yep. And it's um, really interesting. The Son of Man is the one who's going to come in glory to end human history and to bring about the reconciliation back to Eden, back to perfection, back yep. to God. It's pretty um, revelatory. Yes. Yeah. So verse 28, we come to the question of when. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Okay, so Jesus says, as far as timetable, think about it in terms of the coming of, you know, in the spring, the coming of summer, you've got uh, that you pick the fig tree because the fig tree drops all its leaves in the winter. And in the late spring, it begins to bud and produce new leaves. When that happens, you know that summer is coming. Is it tomorrow? Is it the next day? Is it the next day? We don't know, but it's soon because the fig tree is responding. Okay? This is the way signs work. Don't look for a specific day or date. Watch the signs of the times. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, how can you say that, Jesus? Does that mean you came back already and we missed it? No, we're talking about the first fulfillment, the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple happened within that generation. They saw it happen. And that gave credibility. They were able to testify to the fact that Jesus said it, it happened. Now the greater fulfillment we can, we can call trustworthy. Okay, so it gives credibility to the prophet. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay? But about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Okay, so even the Son, even Jesus says, I don't even know when it's going to happen right now. That's a mystery hidden in the, in the Father. Okay, be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, 
each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Okay, back, back to John's point, right? Well, we can sleep till the, till, till the temple's built. Then we know that's when we need to start paying attention. Jesus says, you do not know when the master will return to the house. So as his servants, we must watch. We must be ready at all hours, at all times, because we don't know how this is all going to play out. We don't know. When it's all said and done, we'll look back and we'll say, it's exactly like he said. But until then, God doesn't want us to have one particular thing that will allow us to relax until, right, until he comes. If Jesus had said, look, I'm coming back on in 2028, right? <laughs> we, how would, what would humanity have done? Around like We'd have kicked back until 2027. Then we'd have started frantically cleaning the house, right? Getting ready for the coming of Jesus, cleaning up our act. But God wants it to be a mystery because he, he doesn't want the world to know. He doesn't want us to get lazy and to become, we become complacent waiting for his return. That's All right. Right, but that's Matthew. Paul's message to the Thessalonians. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is Jesus' Olivet Discourse. This is, and I hope you understand a little more clearly now. Um, there's a lot in here. There's a lot that Jesus gives us. I love the idea of birth pains because a new day is coming, a day when we're going to know God in a whole different way, a whole different way, a more complete way. We're going to know him face to face. And for eternity. And that's what Jesus is talking to us about.